anybody with the skills can implement these things. The real advantage is sort of considering to where you were. And where we were was mm. we had a lot of manual processes. And so the really big key component that we've now enabled is to really efficiently use our time and energy to better our customer experience. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsor, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining another episode of Data Futurology. In Data Futurology, we discuss the challenges and tips from executives in the data science, machine learning, and AI space from around the world. We want to bring you different perspectives to the problems that are being faced and to help you gather more knowledge and more information about how to get more value from your analytics and AI initiatives. Uh, generally, we focus on non-technical concepts, and that's because at Data Futurology, we feel that uh, most of the content, most of the learning that you can do about data science is focused on the technical part from online content, online resources, universities, etc. You can get really good at the coding, at the maths, the algorithms, etc. But there is not much content for leadership and strategy and how to become a more impactful leader and lead great initiatives within an organization. So that's what we cover in Data Futurology. And today we're going to be speaking about the world of retail, AI, and what the future holds. Before we jump in, I have to say thank you to our sponsor, which is Talent Insights. Talent Insights has been supporting us for a long time, so show them some love whenever you can. They are great, and they help us to bring this content to the community for free, which is fantastic. I'll introduce our guest today, which is Aaron Pratt. He's the analytics and AI lead for Country Road Group, which has a huge broad remit across multiple different brands, which Aaron will tell us about. But mate, thank you so much for being in the show. How are you feeling today? Yeah, not too bad. Um, good morning to everyone. Um, yeah, it's it's certainly a, a different sort of Friday morning than that I'm used to, but yeah, can't can't complain too much. Um, it's always good to see the weather sort of shining out a bit as well, which is yeah a bit different to what we've been having lately in, in Melbourne anyway. So. Good man, good man. And uh, I put a comment before asking where people are joining from, and we have some people uh, from from the US, people from Melbourne. Um, from Sydney as well. So really, a uh, really diverse group. So Aaron, mate, uh, can you um, start by telling us about your your role um, and your remit and the focus areas and uh, a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, my name's Aaron Pratt. Um, as Philippe said, I, I'm the AI and Advanced Analytics Manager at Country Road Group. Um, for those who don't know Country Road Group, uh, there's... As, as Philippe also said, there's a number of brands that sort of sit um, under that umbrella. Um, there's Country Road, Trinary, Witchery, Mimco, Politics, um, and then there's also, um, as a almost kept as a separate business, is David Jones. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot sort of going on amongst all those different brands. Um, but essentially, my my role is to really sort of lead um, effectively the, the data science or the organisation. Um, and so yeah, my team and I. 
uh, we we sit down and we try to sort of liaise with all the different business units to understand like what what data science applications can we build for them um, that will make their lives a whole lot easier. Awesome, awesome, and great to see that. Um, yeah, I'm sure that there's very interesting challenges about the the breadth of having different brands and you know some benefits of of centralization. Um, so before we jump into that. Tell us how how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, <laughs> that's a long story. Um, like, how long have we got? Um, so yeah, essentially, so when I first started out of uni, um, I uh, went pretty much launched straight into a, a game design career. Um, so I'm not sure if right. many people know, but there's um, like here in Australia, there's like the one sort of key um, slot machine company or uh, Pokies uh, called Aristocrat. And I was, yeah, effectively doing the, the game design for those for those machines. Um, most people, when they think about game design, um, think, oh, yeah, it's just um, oh, you guys just get to play games all day and you get paid to play games. That may be true. Um, but what, um, like in terms of the math that sort of sit behind, um, particularly in, in sort of like gambling scenarios, the idea is that you're trying to sort of make the game and the game mechanics um, as fun for the player because, like, there's no there's no sort of lie that you, you are on average going to lose your money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about sort of putting the mechanics that that make make the game fun. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of where I started um, doing all sorts of like crazy creative um, math models in, in that space, um, which is very fun. Uh, then the GFC hit, um, and at the time. Um, our studio was based in Melbourne. The, the parent company was based in Sydney. And, yeah, like we were considered, a, a, I think, a geographical expense. And so pretty much the entire studio got, got given the axe. Um, and so, yeah, like me being sort of what, a few years into the job, um, yeah, like I, I was sort of completely blown away by, by like, what am I going to do next? Um and so, yeah, so from there, I, I sort of jumped over to the other side of the fence and I, I was working at Crown for a little bit. Um, so instead of creating the games, you're implementing the games in, in the venues. Um, yeah, very different remit. Um, but before long, I sort of made my way back into more research-based um, roles. So I went into market research for a bit, um, found a job at a company called Forethought, um, which again is based here in Melbourne. Um, they uh, like they're a market research agency, and I really got a lot of exposure to a real breadth of different industries. So everything from aviation uh, to retail to um, uh, pharmaceutical companies through to like so many different different areas. Um, purely trying to find out, I guess, like the psychology <clears throat> that sits behind uh, consumer decisions for those different companies. Um, and that's sort of where I really started to sort of uh, use a lot of the different sort of um, AI machine learning stuff that I use today. Um, from there, I jumped over to another company called Lewis Research, which again was in the market research industry. Um, but then eventually I sort of made my way to 7-Eleven um, here in Australia. Uh, so at 7-Eleven, I was like at the time, I was their only data scientist. <laughs> um, I was sort of their, their very first little foray into, into data science. Um, and yeah, like what that role really allowed me to do was to be able to sort of play around with all that creative 
thinking that I'd sort of learned along the way through game design, um, but implement it in a much more structured retailing business. Um, so, yeah, like the stuff that I was working on was like trying to understand um, like slurpy weather predictions. Um, nice. So so depending on um, like what the temperature was on a given day, I could very accurately tell you how many slurpees we'd sell at, at different stalls around the around the nation. Um, That's which, great. Which is obviously like it's it's lots of fun to talk about, but yeah, it actually has like real world applications because from a supply chain point of view, like you can actually inform um, based on the forecast, like how much supply you're going to need for for products to get out there. Um, yeah, and so apart from apart from just that one key example, there was like probably the biggest piece of work I did at Seven Eleven was around um, their facial recognition uh, software. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in my time there, I'm not sure. Um, how how um, how known it is to the audience, but there was there was some uh, media that sort of hit hit the airwaves um, around underpayment of staff. Um, and so what we as the head office um, were trying to understand and, and try to sort of mitigate was to make sure that all the employees within the different franchises um, were protected from from that from that scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we implemented a facial recognition solution that instead of facing customers or trying to understand, okay, which customers are coming in, we were facing it the other way to, um, to the staff um, as a way to effectively. And, and what, what I ended up doing was creating like a facial time carding system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so using my, like using my, my stuff that I built out, um, we ended up sort of cross-checking that back to the, the core time carding system and any anomalies that came up um, would cause a red flag, and, and we'd start a big investigation off the back of it. Um, That's awesome. And then, yeah, and then eventually I've, yeah, from there made my way to Country Road, um, where I'm doing the stuff that I'm doing today. Man, that is great. That is um, that is awesome. And and also you went from uh, from being a data scientist well in 7-eleven you were the first data scientist i assume then the the team grew from there and now you are uh, leading the the team and the initiative across across a number of brands how was the how was the switch over for you before we we jump into the the applications there yeah it was it was like yeah it's um, a good question um like it wasn't that hard i wouldn't say that it was hard but it was certainly different like so and even now um like the, it's the real change is about sort of instead of being the person on the tools doing all the, the sort of the, the coding and, and everything around actually getting the numbers out you're now in the process of delegating that to the team and, and managing um i guess the the breadth of queries that are coming in dispersing it across the team and sort of being the conduit to the business mm. as well yeah great really good and um Tell and so tell us how's how's the the last um, almost almost two years in in the role been? What's been your your journey like? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, not, not gonna lie, COVID sort of did did um, have a little bit of a say in that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's certainly been it's been very interesting. Um, lots of learning along along the way. They uh, like probably the the really big thing for me was when I came into the position. Um, you sort of have this expectation that uh, a, a business like Country Road Group would have um, all of its data in check, would have um, all the right systems in place, and that's just 
that's very rarely the case. So, so when you come in, like the very first, like three to six months, is really just sort of establishing, okay, what is the core platform that we're that we're going to be utilizing? Um, what are we going to build out to to sort of make our, our, our sort of daily bread worth of work? Um, yeah, so there was that sort of component. Um, but yeah, as you say, like the journey is is really about sort of expanding the knowledge base and the yeah, the applicability to the business um, for all the different applications that you're building. Awesome. And where where did you decide to to start um, the the applications in? Um, yeah. So <laughs> the like is in like the software vendor or the no, just the the yeah the yeah area of, of application. Yeah. Yeah, there, there was there was a few. So, um, like for us, like the real key thing that I was really interested in coming in was to understand like what is the the cross shop, um, like what does that behavior look like for our different customer groups? Mm-hmm. Um, so to understand, okay, well, which customers who shop at Country Road are also shopping at David Jones? Like, what do they mm-hmm. look like? Like, what are they purchasing? What makes them different to to other customer groups? Um, so that was yeah, like prior to me coming in, that was something that they really hadn't even had the ability to do. Yeah. Um, so just understanding that um, that sort of first behaviour around um, around what those customers are doing, that was probably the, the very first thing. Um, then from there, we we started to move into more sort of like as I said, those data, data science use cases. Um, so yeah, we we actually had a, an initiative around probably this time last year. Um, where we liaised with AWS themselves um, to sort of build out what we called um, like our like a phase two initiative. So it was all around um, if we were to put down the top five key things that the business wanted to do, um, let's try and smash this out in a, a sort of a short sprint mm-hmm. worth of work um, and sort of showcase that back to the business. Um, so that included um, sentiment analysis. So that was one of the, the key things that we built out. Um, there were some other sort of dashboarding requirements. Um, another really key thing that they were interested in at the time was around something called churn mitigation. So, called what, sorry? Uh, churn mitigation. Uh-huh, yep. Um, so, like understanding, okay, which which customers at this very time uh, are likely to churn? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're sort of building out this, this probabilistic model to say, okay, this person is X percent likely to churn at this point of time. Um, and then you can use that information to, to actually activate marketing campaigns off the back of it. So if a person is likely to churn at a specific point in time, you can like activate in the background and autonomously this this piece of um, marketing. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's really um, yeah, great great applications, and and definitely um, it ties into the some of the poll questions that we have. So I might, I might close the poll and we can have a look at the, at the answers and take it from, from there. So we had, we have over 75% of people responded to the poll and I'm sharing the results now. So you should be able to, everyone should be able to see them. First question is, have you used sentiment analysis in your organization? Straight down the middle, 50, 50 uh, between yes and no. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the, um, maybe start with, start with um, what is sentiment analysis for the people that don't know, and then tell us about how you uh, used it or implemented in, um, at your work. Yep, sure. So sentiment analysis is typically where you take 
um, unstructured data like text or you could do voice to text or like some other, like basically some um, customer feedback and you are putting around whatever sentiment is based in that uh, in that unstructured data to make it a bit more structured and so for instance what we did um, so MPS is probably like the one of the key things that we um, amongst many other organizations uh, start to sort of dabble in mm. um, to understand sort of customer sentiment. Um, in that questionnaire, there's, um, I'm not sure if people have answered the question, but basically you say um, from a scale from zero to 10, how, how likely are you to recommend this organization? Um, and then usually a question after that is, well, why did you give that answer? Our first part that we wanted to really understand was instead of having to do sort of manual analysis on a whole bunch of different um, text responses, um, is there any sort of key themes that were starting to bubble up in that in that text response? And so yeah, so we built this this engine that not only sort of identified the, the I guess the positive, neutral, and negative sort of spectrum to to sentiment. Um, but also was able to codify different categories that were um, inherent in those text responses. So, for instance, um, if if a customer had a had a complaint about sizing, um, this engine basically was able to um, identify a that there's a complaint here from a customer, um, and then b source it specifically around the like the sizing issue, like or was it a quality issue, or was it um, a customer service issue? Um, there's there's all these different things that it automatically picks up. Um, the second part to that is to sort of, and we're still working on this, to be honest, but it's about really embedding that in the different systems around the business. So imagine if a customer calls up the, the service line saying, okay, I've got a problem um, because we're all in the same ecosystem so that our, um, our customer service uh, telephony system is also based in AWS, um, we uh, can capture that. Um, as a bit of a, a voice-to-text component, codify that part up, um, categorize that text, and actually do something with it in real time. So, um, so again, like if if a customer has a complaint, we can actually capture that complaint. We can pipe that through to our other um, service ticketing system, and actually have a, a live response to that um, in as efficient a way as possible. That's fantastic, man. That is great. What were what were some of the challenges in the um, in the implementation? Yeah, like I mean, so yeah, the, the reason why I sort of say that it's a bit of a work in progress is also around um, yeah, just getting access to the different systems. As I sort of alluded to at the start, um, like because there's so many different brands and there's so many different um, sort of stakeholders around the business. Uh, further to that, there's also a whole lot of different systems. Um, and so trying to understand, okay, well, we need to pipe this data to this system, or we need to get access to that system, and then we're going to try and do this to this one. Oh, no, this one's um, blocked through this port. Okay, let's try some other sort of thing. Um, so, yes, yeah, so there is a whole lot of challenges from that point of view. Um, it would be great if you, it just did what it was supposed to do from the start, but that's yeah. it's very rarely the case. So. That's right. Yeah, really rarely the case. So, so um. Yeah, the, the the work at the moment is in terms of getting the um, getting the insight that came out of the the um, the text after the MPS question. Getting the so you've tagged it, you've um, assigned it to to an area, and now it's about getting it to to that area in a way that can be 
resolve for the customer. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but like so there's other parts of that as well that we've that we've implemented. So um in terms of like drivers for MPS, um traditionally you would use the other questions in the survey to help infer like what's actually mm-hmm. driving MPS at that time. Um when you start to double with the sentiment analysis, you've got this whole extra plethora of, of different variables that you can start to plug into a driver analysis. Um, and so one thing that we're seeing automatically out of the model is that customer service, for instance, is, is by far the, the biggest driver for, for MPS. Um, and we can actually start to use that information. So if we can see that people are most responsive or most impacted by customer service, then you need to operationalize that. Like you need to make sure that your customer service is, is spot on from the from the get-go. And then that has obvious impacts to to bottom line. So definitely. And um so you you uh, my assumption is that you're getting the MPS question mostly from the online um, experience or is that captured offline as well? So yes for op- uh, so for both. So our great um, our MPS system is um, like yeah, there's there's a range of different things, but it's all about like if you transact with us through the different businesses, yeah. um, there's a system in the background that captures okay, well these customers um, purchase this at this time, mm. and they sort of go into a pool of will they receive a, a questionnaire or not? Nice, very nice. And um, I have you looked into tying the the responses to the staff. That they that they dealt yep. with, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like so. Basically, staff are actually that's one of their KPIs for the year. Um, uh-huh. So like it's one of the easy ones to mm. to sort of just strategically put in place. Um, but yeah, so staff MPS is is all around. Um, yeah, like so, as I said, like that actually ties directly into their bonus. Um, yeah. So what you can now do is also depending on how much data you have, you can also start to. Um, build out a driver analysis for individual staff members if if needed. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Right. And the and the and the teams as well. And um, if you have different different compositions of of teams and you have enough data, you can start to identify who is a high performer that that positively af- affects the the team performance um, mm-hmm. versus exactly. versus otherwise. Um, yeah. Super exciting, man. That's that's really great. The going back to the to the poll, the second question was around price optimization, which I know is another area that, that you guys have done really exciting work. Um, so when we asked the audience, have you used price optimization in your organization? Most people said no. Mm-hmm. 69% of people said said no. And the rest, yes. Uh, so similar to the, the previous uh, question, can we start with Definition of price optimization, what it includes, and then uh, let's jump into how you have used it um, at Country Road Group. No worries. So, yeah, definition for price optimization. Um, basically, if you're selling a product, um, the one thing that you can control is the price point that you sell it at. Um, so, if you're selling, say, a jumper or, or a t shirt or like whatever you're selling, um, the price point uh, directly. Uh, is impacting the demand for that product. So if you think about, say, um, how many people drive um, a Lotus versus how many people drive uh, a Honda, like that's that's driven by um, 
by the price point. I mean, if we all had like a million dollars just to splurge, we, we may all buy the Lotus, but, but that's that's very rarely the case. Uh, and so you sort of, so as you start to vary the price point, the demand of a product um, basically will sharply decline. But in saying that, there's there is somewhere in the middle there where there's a sweet spot of um, that the right demand for that product versus the cost of the product gives you the optimal profit at that point. Um, and so that's pretty much what we're what we're playing at with with price optimization. Um, how we've implemented it at Country Road Group, and again, this is this is a big work in progress. Um, but we have a, a piece of work that's underway at the moment. That's all about sort of gathering as much sort of competitive price points as possible. Um, traditionally, in retail, you would probably do this with either like passive shoppers or so. For instance, like when I was at Seven Eleven, like <laughs> the, the marketing team would actually go out to like our competitors and just sort of browse and and note down a few sort of price points and then come back, put that into a system to then try and um, analyze what what the different price points are. Um, the problem with that sort of process is it's it's all about human interaction. So mm-hmm. you're going to end up with a whole lot of errors, with coding errors, with writing it down. And by the time you actually get that data back into the system, who's to say that the price point hasn't already changed? There's all those different factors that you need to take into consideration. Um, and so, like, but these days, there's a much faster and, and more efficient way to do this, these sorts of things, particularly as we start to venture into the online world. Um, and so you can actually create like a, a pricing scraper, which can go off and, and scrape um, a whole bunch of different websites to, to understand um, just automatically, like what is the different price points that um, your competitors are selling certain products at. Uh, so that's that's certainly something that we're building at the moment. Um, the way that we've also structured that as well is to sort of put an inherent hierarchy into the different, different SKUs um, to, to understand okay, like what's the like-for-like like comparison to, to our business? Um, like what if we were to look at the average price point for, say, um, clothing or, or menswear or women's wear or women's accessories, um, what does that correspond to from our competitive uh, point of view? Now, the, the key component that you need to think about with this is that that price differential, um, just because it's like if you're selling it for more expensive, that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. Um, what can actually happen is that by shifting that dial even further, um, you may find that you end up with more profit. You, you may find that you actually sell more um, for some in unknown reason. So the, the idea is that you're using these price differentials to then infer what your optimal price point is. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, actually, before before I, I, I ask you, I'll ask you about the 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 drivers and um or maybe the levers uh that, that you're optimizing on but before i do that uh, uh we got a question uh through the q a from from ryan morning mate um he says great to see country road group is investing in data science to improve customer experience with the brand question is how much of an advantage do you feel this is giving you over the competition um, and then he says, it seems to me that maybe many high street retailers are relying on black box AI slash point solution and applications to deliver customer experience rather than a centralized view of the customer. Um, yeah. Do you have any, any thoughts on, on that side? Yeah. I mean, so completely agree with the, the black box 
solutions. I mean, um, the thing that that always does my head in is like when I deal with the, the different stakeholders around business, from marketing through to uh, our CRM team, they they always have like their go-to solution for for something, and I'm always challenging them like this was built with a specific thing in, in mind. That's that's not what our business is. Mm. Um, and so we, like my, my team in particular, we always try to sort of challenge the, the status quo with, with, that, with that sort of thinking um, to the point where we would predominantly build these sort of solutions in-house because we know that this is exactly what is going to work for, for our systems and our, and our customers ultimately. Yeah, nice one. And and um, how much of an advantage do you feel that that this this approach to to implementing data science in retail uh, is giving you guys? Yeah, I mean, like, so the the advantage, like, it's it's funny because a lot of these things, like, anybody with the skills can implement these things. The real advantage is sort of considering to where you were, and where we were was mm. we had a lot of manual processes. And so the really big key component that we've now enabled is to really efficiently use our time and energy to better our customer experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And from a, from a process perspective in, in terms of price optimization, you've got the, the scraping of prices, you've got the um, um, identifying similarities of products, um, and then... And then when you go to the optimization part, what are what are the levers that you're um, moving and yeah, optimizing on, and what are yeah. what are you shooting for? Yeah, I mean, like so, like ultimately, like retail is quite frankly, it's 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 about making money, but mm. and mm. but making money by providing things to a consumer, um, and so probably the very first thing that we would try to optimize on is is profit, um, and so profit is it's really just a factor of the price point that you're selling it at, the volume that you're selling at that price point, and then the cost per product at that price point as well. Mm. Um, and so as you start to play around with the price point, you can obviously see that you can start to optimize that profit equation. Um, but in saying that, like there may be times when volume is is more, um, like is, is the, the key driver that you're trying to, um, to shift the dial on. And so you may want to sort of tweak price point um, by making it a little bit less um, profitable, but by increasing the volume. And that can obviously um, improve your market share. It can in- improve um, a whole bunch of other metrics that in turn, in, in the long run, will ultimately in- improve your-, your profit. Yeah, nice one. And are there any competitive advantages um, that you guys have as a, as a group or as individual brands? Uh, any competitive advantage that you can lean on um, to to improve things compared to your to competitors, and maybe that's number number of stores or or um, yeah, any anything like that. Yeah, I mean, like so, particularly through the the, the previous sort of COVID period, mm. um, stores and and the number of stores that we had um, was certainly in question. Um, and so, mm. one thing that we were considering was more around. Um, like where do we position our stores nationally um, in order to sort of optimise um, our, our visibility to our customers, to our core customers, um, but also relative to each other, like what is, what is the sort of the, the, the standpoint that we're trying to um, 
make the group as profitable as possible. Um, and like, as again, like it sounds nice when you say it on the page, um, but inherently like the different brands are sometimes actually considered a competitor to each other. Mm. So if you think of say witchery and country road, um, the women's wear that we have in country road, um, there was a period of time where witchery was saying, Oh, country road stealing my customers. And it's like, well, hang on there. They're all the same customer. Like it's, it's our customers. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's really sort of about um, embedding um, a more group wide thinking mm. to, to the, the different analytics that you're putting in. Nice one. That's a really good, really good um, change that, that, um, that, an AI and analytics team can bring into an organization having that, that higher level perspective. That's awesome. And uh, we have a question from, from Tony uh, asking about seasonality and pricing. So he says, how much does seasonality uh, affect and come into pricing as you optimize? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a good question. Um, the, I mean, like, so, so when we start to play around with price optimization, um, the, I think the, the key point to consider is that it's not, it's not something that's static. It's not something that you need to just change mm. once a year yeah. and then, and then you can do it. Like it's something that you can change in real time, see what the, see what the demand is off the back of that, and then um, have the system adjust accordingly. Um, but in saying that, so particularly in retail, um, like Christmas is is basically the one key period of the year where something like 50% of the entire year's um, selling is, is actually done within the, that one week before Christmas. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so being as, as that's such an important time of the year, um, obviously pricing is going to play a massive part in, in trying to drive um, the, your group-wide strategic targets from a profitability point of view. Um, so, yeah, so there is, there is a fair bit of seasonality that you do need to consider. Um, and yeah, like it, it is still possible to, to optimize around that though. Great, really good. And um, a, a question from, from Wayne is um, around inventory management. So the question is, have you applied AI slash ML to buying, distributing or redistribution of stock? Uh, yeah, so it's at, at the moment, it's not sort of as a live system, like there's, there's a few sort of prototypes around the business that we're trying to, Sort of showcase that you can use these parts, like these these different parts of AI and ML in. Um, one thing we actually did recently was, and when I say recently, it was probably around six months ago now. Um, but we sort of we worked with supply chain to understand um, from a dispatch point of view. So if you think of like when a customer comes online and they purchase something through our website, um, there's a whole bunch of processes that sort of determine where to choose the stock from. Um, mm. So the warehouse can only have so much stock available to it, um, and predominantly they're the sort of the the most appropriate SKUs. Um, and although it may be cheaper to fulfil from the warehouse, it may not be cheaper to um, to actually send it mm. from the warehouse if they well, if they don't have the stock to begin with, but also um, if stock is say closer to to the customer. And so there's a, a big algorithm that sort of sits in the background. Um, that helps to decide where to pick the stock from. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we sat down and we basically optimised that, that dispatch algorithm um, in order to make it as effective as possible 
um, while keeping sort of the the cost components to a minimum. Nice. That's um that's really good. How much does um demographics and the type of customers that that go into the store and and the the surrounding demographics of the store how much does that drive um the inventory management yeah, yeah um it's a it's a good question again the um so what we what we know from different stores is that different stores particularly um from their sort of their as you say their geographical um profile they have different needs to other stores and so when you think about brick and mortar um there's typically a, a huge range review that goes through those different store environments to understand like what's the optimal range to to fit into this store hmm. um, when you think of that from an online perspective online should basically have everything um, and there's some cases though particularly in, in sort of a, a dj's point of view where our suppliers um, will only sort of um, well may only want um, certain products to be available at, say, our flagship stores. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so there, there is a whole sort of range between um, trying to understand, like, what's the optimal um, range to have in each stores from a, a data science perspective, but also what's the most, like, practical when it comes down to um, sort of vendor management. Yeah, that's nice. That's really good to bring in the the yeah, business needs that, that are you know, can be, can be seen as, as constraints, like you bring them in and, and help optimize within the, that playing field. That's, that's really great. Um, question, question three in the poll was around time on tools. Um, so it was how much time do you spend on the tools? And um, the majority of people said, or 35% people said less than 10%. Um, and, uh, and another 35% of people said between 40 and 60%. Uh, so it might be a split between management and, and uh, the people doing the work. Other responses, it was between 10 and 40% with 23% of, of people saying that. And then very few people on the 60% plus time on the tools. Um, what are your thoughts about those, those answers, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's something that, like I would love to have more time in the tools hmm. um, because like that's like to me that's that's a whole lot of fun to actually be like right in the thick of like a key project and actually sort of building out all those different components um, in, in a seamless coding environment that just integrates nicely with everything. It's yeah, like it, that brings, brings me a lot of joy and um, you know, I wish I had more time for it. Um, but when you start to sort of start to manage a team and and those number of queries that come into your team just scale up big time. Um, what you like inherently have to find is that there's a trade-off between um, sort of managing the team and managing the the amount of accountabilities that that you and the team have, and the time of the tools. And so the yeah, so for me these days, I'm probably in the the less than ten percent, um, which like, that's not a bad thing. It's just mm. like that's just the progression that you that you go on. Um, but like ultimately, like if I was to say that the team's productivity because of that um, is is far greater than if I was to be on the tools full time. So, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I I agree, and I'm the same. Yeah, definitely in the in the end of ten percent of time on the tools, and would love for that to be more. Uh, but the 
sometimes or well, often as a leader, your, your time is better spent in helping other people be uh, more productive or, or um, more effective in their work. And that's definitely time that you're not on the tools. Um, and before we jump into question four, uh, we have a question from Emily who says, um, you know, online channels have been increasing in popularity and obviously COVID um, did a, a big, big leap for that. Um, she's asking how have, um, I guess, how have you seen that transition into more an online uh, demand um, or a world of more online demand and whether there's been any, any use of AI in customer experience on the online channels? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'll answer the first one first then. So the, the demand for online, um, and I'm sure, like as I said before, like when we went through COVID, I'm sure we weren't the only ones, but online just went absolutely through the roof. Um, I think we, like we absolutely smashed our targets. So we were already sort of trending to a more online business. Um, like one of the things that we were certainly um, strategically thinking about is like what is the role that um, brick and mortar plays in sort of this digitally um, accelerating economy. Um, and so when do you start to um, close your stores because um, of, of COVID restrictions, um, that digital economy just like that's the only way that people could actually shop with the different brands. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we did have to accelerate um, a lot of different key aspects of, of the online retail journey. Um, and so, yeah, like it was, it was just something that you either you did or you didn't do. And, and if you didn't do it, then you're sort of left behind with um, sort of next best in class. So, um, yeah, it's certainly a journey that the, that the different brands went on. Yeah, the, the, definitely, definitely the case. That makes sense. And then, and, and, um, have you had any uses of AI on customer experience on the online channels? Yeah, so like probably the very first and, and easiest to implement is the whole sort of chatbot functionality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and one thing that we, um, again, due to our sort of uh, embedding of AWS um, from that sort of standpoint, um, one thing that we, we basically put in place was um, a live chat system that allows our customer service to effectively see customers online as if they were, as if that was its own store. And so like they actually have a portal where they're sort of moving around um, going from sort of menswear to womenswear and, and can see how many customers are browsing that department online. Uh, it's actually, it's a very nice little system. I've forgotten the name of it, but it's um, yeah, well worth looking into. And, and what they can do is they can actually sort of tap the customer on the shoulder and, and as they sort of come through, they can like that pop up on, on the customer side as a little sort of, um, of would you like any help with your, with your purchase today? Um, sometimes you, you might actually think that that's um, a chatbot sort of sitting in the background, but it's, it's actually a real customer service um, officer in the background. Um, as we start to move that forward though, you can obviously think, okay, well, what's the, what's the commonalities uh, or what's the common problems that, that these um, service agents are actually starting to starting to address and what can say a real chatbot um, sort of leverage in that area. That's awesome, man. That's great. Um, yeah, use use the, the the humans to teach the the machine, make those bits scalable and um, and leave the the new ones, the new questions, new problems, new areas for, for humans. That's great. Yeah. Um, we have a question from Dasa. It says, good to see you, Aaron. Um, what is the question is, what is the best proportion of BI and AI 
in a retail business? BI versus AI. Um, I mean, like ideally, BI is like that's that's your that, that's your daily bread. Like that's that's what you should be sort of relying on for for numbers each and every day. I think AI it relies on the BI to be right um, most of the time. So if you're wanting to get AI really embedded correctly, you need to make sure that you have your, your BI like completely um, sorted out. Um, but yeah, so in terms of, I guess, the proportionality, like, I mean, so BI itself, as I said, like that's that's daily, daily sort of bread. AI is really about making things more efficient. I, I sort of liken it to, if you think of the BI as the police, the AI yeah. is, that, that's a swap team. Like you don't need it every day, um, but when you do need it, it can really get the job done. Great, great analogy. Love it. Um, question four on the poll was, um, what would you like to see from retail in a post-COVID-19 world? Um, and so we had options there as augmented reality, VR stores, smart mirrors, and then seamless experience between online and offline world. That last one was the most popular one. Um, any any thoughts from your side? Yeah, I mean, like it's, so these are all things that, that we're considering. Um, and so, like, I'll probably go from the, the least to the, the best here. So from a smart mirrors perspective, um, one thing that I um, and, and, like, my team in particular, like, the things that we sort of start to, to dabble in are things that we most of the business hasn't even thought of yet. So when we talk about smart mirrors, like, what if we had in the dressing room, um, instead of having to go out and get new clothes to come into the dressing room, what if you could just go into the dressing room, um, tap a button, and you could automatically change what outfit you were wearing on the mirror itself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the sort of stuff that we're that we're starting to to think about um, potentially implementing throughout different businesses. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of the, the smart mirror component. It's not something that we've we've done yet, but I think it's it's something that as we start to move down the AI um, accelerated journey, the like that's the sort of project that. From a customer point of view, it's all about making the customer's life as easy as possible. And so, like, if you're going into a store and you can see that, like, one of the key problems that that store is having is that um, change rooms or um, the amount of stock that people are going back and forth with mm. is a bit of a problem. There's mm. potential theft that's going on. You can start to mitigate that with with the use of, say, a smart mirror. Yeah, um, that's great. Ter- yeah, Sorry? in terms of, I was just going to say, in terms of VR stores. Um, the next one. So, again, if you think about the online journey, um, and there is actually some retailers who, who do this, um, particularly in, in Europe, um, they have effectively built um, like a virtual reality store for their online experience. And so the idea is that you can you can put on your, your headset or you could even just go into your browser and instead of just seeing like a standard sort of online experience, their experience is that they're actually sort of walking through a virtual store um, and the idea is that it's like it's it's that it sort of speaks to the last one as well, where it's trying to create that seamless um, differentiation between an online versus an offline um, experience. Um, again, augmented reality. So if you like, augmented reality is a little bit um, of like if you think about the smart mirrors, mm-hmm. um, it's just about sort of overlaying something on top of um, top of reality. And so. You can do the same thing with the smart mirror. You can do the same thing from um, inside games. So again, like what we've seen um, are 
through our vendors. So um, there are certain vendors who say have put um, their online products uh, available through, say, games like Fortnite. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you look at the likes of Nike and, and Gucci and, and other sort of really big name brands, um, they're selling things really expensively um, to to the younger demographic um, on Fortnite to have a sort of a digital persona. Wow. <laughs> that's that's the world we live in. So Makes me feel old. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you get started. Um, yeah, so like I think it, in terms of like it probably isn't any surprise that the last one here is is the most popular um, mm. because that the differentiation between online and offline, um, particularly as we move to a, a probably this the digital accelerated world, um, you really need to have it like right in line with each other. Um, if you have a different experience, customers themselves from a psychology point of view, they're going to consider it as two different entities um, to the point where they could even think of like the DJs online or some brand online versus a brand offline um, is actually two different brands in themselves. Um, and the whole point that we're trying to work towards is to make that one seamless journey. It's great. And we had a related question from Tony. Uh, he asks, how do you track uh, individual customers from online to offline? Yep. So, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of smarts that go into that. Um, the very first one is probably from a CRM point of view. So if they are a member, um, as you come into stores, you can scan your, your loyalty card and we can basically track your, your offline sales um, with also your online sales at the same time. So that, that's all sort of linked to your, your sort of mm -hmm. your digital membership. Um, where that's not the case, um, we do have access to, to a, like through our banking um, provider, mm -hmm. we do have access to sort of like a hashed credit card. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that the retailers in general have um, the ability to pay for. Mm -hmm. um, and what that allows you to do is to see, okay, well, what's, what's the like? Like where have I seen this credit card like, and what's the purchases that this credit card is then associated to? So without actually knowing who that person is, you can start to profile, um, okay, well, this credit card purchased this, this, and this. This is probably who they are. Um, and then we can start to analyze, okay, well, this is the type of customer who's purchasing this. This is how many customers we have of that. What else would they like? Right. Yep. That's, that's excellent. We, uh, we have a question from Caleb uh, around measuring the customer experience in the store. Um, and so particularly he says uh, with omni-channel strategies, mainly focusing on the digital channels, why do you think more retailers are not using technologies like video analytics and RFID to get a deeper understanding of the customer in the physical store? Um, and and this is based on, a, on an assumption from him that says, um, that the majority of, of transactions are made in a store, if that's the case, does it warrant more investment into understanding how the customer movements and the and, and kind of like what they interact with while they're in the store? Yeah, I mean, so we, we certainly have that as well. Um, I think the real um, sort of the, the thing that sort of sits behind that is that it's, it's very expensive like, mm. and, and as, as you start to scale that up, particularly um, across like very big stores that we have, mm -hmm. um, 
that becomes very expensive very quick. Um, but in, in saying that, we do have certain um, capabilities in that in that aspect. Um, so, like, there's there's certain things that sort of like I think we call it like touch points. So we can track customers as they come through touch points. Um, but particularly in Australia, that uh, on top of the expensiveness behind it, mm. there's also a huge factor on um, sort of the, the customer data side. So we have a lot of um, legislation in place that is there to protect customers' privacy. Um, and so without people giving informed consent around um, a lot of these issues, um, then the actual trackability of that is, is something that's, um, that's very problematic. Yeah, definitely, and um, yeah, I've seen I've seen some some organizations getting uh, customers to download an app and for them to to sort of consent into into um, some linking through the app and then they can use that in the store and and kind of like that that helps bridge the gap. But there's definitely uh, protections to be considered there. Uh, we have another question around around loyalty, so maybe this this would be a good point to to talk about the maybe the churn mitigation side if you want, or, or we can go into how you guys uh, think about loyalty and, and some of the work that you've done there. Up to you. Yeah, I mean, so we can certainly talk about churn mitigation. Um, but, yeah, so loyalty, um, so from like I'll, I'll think of it in two different things at the moment. So loyalty for CRG is at a very different um, sort of scale to what it is in, in David Jones at the moment. Mm. Um so if we just think about CRG, um, something around the 80% of all transactions that occur are loyalty transactions. So they're people who are actively engaged with the brand and have a loyalty account, um, which, like, yeah, again, when I first started, that was just phenomenal. I, I, I didn't realise that we had um, so many loyalists to the brand, um, which, yeah, so huge, huge win for that. Um, in terms of, I guess, the other facets to that, because you've got such a large base of your customers who are loyalty customers, one of the key reasons why we went through the whole term mitigation process is because if you've got such a large base, the worst thing you want to have is to have that sort of slowly deteriorate over time because mm. people are, are churning. Um, and so that's why we, we, we went through the term mitigation process to try and understand well, what are the key levers that, that we can drive um, to, to mitigate that churn and how can we implement those in as seamless a way as possible. So, for instance, if, like, at the moment, what we're sort of built out is this sort of this likelihood to churn model um, based on a whole bunch of different parameters, um, everything from sort of, like, what the customer is purchasing, the last time they purchased it, um, the the average spend that they have, um, where they spent it, their age, their like the other key demographics, all of these things can ladder up to a, a likelihood to churn for that customer. Um, when that threshold starts to dip below a certain key key threshold, then mm. what you can actually have happen in the background is some sort of automated task that that mm -hmm. can either be sent out as an offer, like oh here's five dollars to come and spend in our stores, or Oh, we, we know that you like this. How about you try maybe purchasing this? Um, you can even optimize that component to be as effective as possible for that customer, knowing that they're a likely to churn customer. Um, and so, like all of these different key, key aspects, is all about trying to maintain your loyalty base um, so that it doesn't 
have any attrition over time um, so that you can actually focus on sort of growing that customer base without any, any worries of it. That's great, man. Awesome, awesome approach. Um, and I think that that's an awesome place to, uh, to end on as well. Awesome, awesome note. Uh, can't, really, can't believe how quickly the, the hour went, went past. Um, mate, thank you so much for giving us such a, a deep understanding of the, the world of data science and in retail. Uh, it's fascinating. Really, really impressed with, with the work that you guys are doing and, and the amount of ground that you've been able to cover um, not only in a short time, but during during the pandemic as well. Um, it's been awesome. So thanks so much for sharing your journey, your perspective, your insights. It's been fantastic. No worries. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on board, Philip. Uh, and thank you so much to everyone who joined live. Uh, especially, I want to give a shout out to um, Minal, Andy, Tony, uh, Ryan, Jason, Wayne, Emily, Shems, Caleb, Rob, um, Dasa, really, really great questions. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much uh, for participating. Thanks to everyone who is active in the chat, uh, bringing questions. And uh, I hope that you found this session really insightful like, like I did. Um, I'm going to tell you, we are also running our Advancing AI series, which runs on, on Tuesdays. Um, it generally has been a Tuesday morning session. The next, the next one coming on, on um, Tuesday next week, that is, uh, it's going to be a lunchtime session. And we have uh, Lachlan Wallace, who is the chief data officer from Woodside Petroleum. They're based in Perth. So it'll be a morning session for WA and a lunchtime session for the East Coast. Um, join us there uh, if you can. And then um, come back for more Data Futurology episodes. We will be releasing this on the podcast in the coming weeks and also uh, keep an eye on it on our YouTube channel. Thanks so much to everyone who joined today. And Aaron, thank you so much again, mate. That was that was fantastic. Thank you, sir. Cheers, sir. Have a great day, everyone. See ya. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.